Each year, as Christmas draws near, there is something special in the air. We all feel it. From the decorations and carols, warm drinks and cozy slippers, it's as if the season taps into a holy longing deeply ingrained within us. You see, this season stirs up within our souls a burning desire we were created to crave. The advent of our King, the arrival of our Savior, our God come near. All of our lives we've experienced the curse of the fall, the shadow that sin cast upon this wounded world. But with the arrival of Jesus, hope came down, love drew near, our King came to conquer. Death will be no more. Shame will be undone. For with the advent of Jesus, the curse is broken. Oh, good morning. How are we doing this morning, Riot City Church? Oh, I'm going to start having to give everybody Red Bull when Zach does announcements. Prepare ourselves for, for that level of excitement. Hey, so I had a buddy the other day come up to me. And uh, just tell me, man, this, I, I'm really loving this series, but it's so, it's, it's weird. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, it's just so unique. I've never had an Advent series like this. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, we're talking about like the garden and the fall and the Old Testament law and Lazarus being raised from the dead in the temple. And I'm like, how is that, how is that strange? Okay, this week we're talking about the Roman Empire, tax codes, <laughs> dominant dictators, politics, and a feeding trough. Okay, you ready to go? All right, grab your Bibles, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. That was the first census that took place while Canerius, the governor, who was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Now, um, I love Luke because Luke is so precise in his, he, he gives so many details. Luke was a doctor, um, and so if you're a doctor, you should be precise. And, and, and so he recounts, he gives this recount of the early Christmas story. He, he writes the whole gospel of Luke, and then he actually writes the book of Acts, which is the account of the early church. And so he's always precise. And, and here's the thing about the Bible. The Bible is not some made-up myth, okay? It's, it's real people, it's real history in real places in real times. It's not written like, you know, folklore where it's like, you know, in Middle Earth, you know, or like at Hogwarts, right? You know, there, there's precision here. And so as we're, re these, are, these are historical people in historical places because it's setting the context for a Jesus that actually entered human history. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. You know, it's, it's always been a fascinating thing to me um, because when you study the scriptures and you read through the Old Testament scriptures, 
it centers around a particular group of people, the Jews, the Hebrews. And all of it is pointing forward to this promised coming Messiah. And, and as you look at it constantly over and over, it's pointing forward to the, the Messiah. And there's these prophecies so that you would be able to recognize him when he comes. And even in this passage, we see many of them here, right here, okay? So let me give you some examples of Old Testament prophecies and how they're fulfilled in Jesus. It tells us that the ruler of Israel, this future Messiah, it will come from Bethlehem. This is, this is Micah 5.2. And yet Jesus, it tells us explicitly here, he is born in Bethlehem. And God moved in human history for this to happen because Joseph and Mary were not living in Bethlehem at the time. But he uses this census for taxation uh, to come to bring them back here. Second, we see that uh, God promised David his offspring would rule, that David's offspring, his offspring would rule forever. And yet Jesus, he's a descendant of David. This is why in Luke and Matthew, you see these long genealogies uh, to kind of paint the framework and the context. It's drawing this lineage back to the Old Testament and the promises that have been made to these people. And yet God, God also promised that a virgin would conceive. We see this in Isaiah 7:14. In Mary, she was a virgin when Jesus was conceived. And this is important for us to understand because it's actually through Adam that the sin nature is passed on, that we are born with a sin nature, yet Jesus was not because he's not a son of Adam. And, and there's 450 to you know, roughly 500 of these Old Testament prophecies about Messiah so that he, when he comes, you would recognize him. And Jesus explicitly fulfills over 300 of them. And the ones he doesn't explicitly fulfill, that's because they're of future Jesus when he comes back and rules and reigns at his return. And so all of Jewish history, all of Hebrew history is pointed towards this Messiah. And then he comes and they miss him. They miss him. How does this happen? How is it that they miss him and they don't recognize him? Well, that's what I want to explore today because that's the last thing I want for, to happen to us. I don't want us to miss the Messiah. I don't want us to miss Jesus in the midst of all that is happening, all that is going on. And so uh, in order to understand how this can happen, we, we first have to understand that one of the curses, as we've been talking about the curses broken, one of the curses of the fall is, is there's this brokenness in relationship between fellow humanity. As God is laying out and explaining the curse that is now on Eve, he says this phrase, and he explains that your husband will rule over you and you will desire him, right? And, and, and this word desire, it's not a good desire. It's, it's the same word that's used that sin is crouching at the door seeking to de devour us. It's desiring after us. And so there's now where we were created to have this side-by-side you know, partnership and relationship in the garden, there's now this desire to rule over and it bleeds over into all of human relationships. Relationships between human beings are now marked by these power dynamics rather than partnership. They're marked by dominance and slavery and abuse and oppression and injustice. The, the brokenness of relationship that we experience 
in our lives that we look back over history and that we've seen, it is all traced back to the fall and the curse of the fall. Again, D.A. Carson, he puts it like this. He says, consumed by our own selfish focus, our own self-focus, we desire to dominate and manipulate others. This fall here is the beginning of fences, of rape, of greed, of malice, of nurtured bitterness, of war. And so as humanity goes and multiplies after the garden and builds cities and cultures, we see this dominant power dynamic. It plays out through the story of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament. And there's three cities in particular uh, you know, um, that, that we kind of find this, three cultures in particular that we find this played out, this narrative of the Old, of the Old Testament. There's Egypt, there's Babylon, and there's Rome, okay? And, and what we see in these is the way that the curse plays itself out. First, um, we find that the, the Israelites, they're slaves in Egypt. The people of God, um, they're enslaved for over 400 years, and they're waiting on their deliverance. It's this power dynamic being played out, and finally, who are they delivered by? They're delivered by a guy named Moses, who is a mouthpiece, a prophet on behalf of God. He says, let my people go. These plagues are sent by God. He leads them out, crosses the Red Sea. And so this kind of creates this pattern that they're looking for. They're like, okay, when we're in trouble, God will send us a deliverer to set us free. And then, you know, they get into Israel and they establish this holy land and this place, this land flowing in milk and honey. And then eventually they're, they're overtaken by the Assyrians who are then overtaken by the, the Babylonian Empire. And so Babylon is actually the backdrop for a lot of the Old Testament as you're reading through. And so when you read stories like Daniel and the lion's den, why does that happen? It's because he's under Babylonian rule. And so the Israelites, they eventually are actually set free uh, to practice their own um, uh, religion and, and culture and customs when this foreign Persian king, Cyrus the Great, conquers the city of Babylon and issues a decree allowing the Jews to return to their homeland, rebuild their temple, and that's all tracked in, in, in places like the minor prophets like Ezra, Nehemiah. But then they find themselves after the Persian Empire under the rule of the Roman Empire. And so this region where the Jews lived, it came under the control of the Greeks and then ultimately the Romans. And the Jews, they initially rebelled against the Roman rule, um, but they were defeated and forced under the authority. Okay, So the Romans, they allowed the Jews to continue to practice their religion and to govern, the, govern themselves according to their own laws, but they were subject to Roman rule and paid taxes to the Roman government. Okay, so this is the context of Jesus showing up. This, so when you read this, this backdrop of the Christmas story, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world and everyone went to their own town. This is painting for us a framework in which the Messiah shows up. And this is important for us to understand because the context in which you find yourselves, the world in which you find yourself, it's what sets expectations, does it not? Man, this is how I'm suffering. This is the pain that I'm facing. This is the, 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 the rule that I'm under. And so therefore, Messiah, he, when he shows up, he's gonna be like this. And so there's this tension between the Jewish people, the chosen people of God to represent and to, bring, to bless all humanity through them and the Roman Empire. And so because of this curse, 
upon human relationships. There's this dominant power dynamic at play. And Rome, they are oppressive rulers over the Jews. And, and so what did this look like? Well, a few different things. First, there, there was crippling taxation. It was, it was massive, right? Um, some estimate that it was probably about 70%, but could have gone up to 80 or 90%. Just like, like imagine that, right? Like we hate, like people literally are like, I'm moving to Washington just because you hate, like hate the taxation, you know? It, it's, it feels like it's constantly growing, constantly building. And people, imagine how they were struggling under that and the frustration and the anger that all their hard work, everything they earn is just constantly going off to taxes. And, and I'm pretty sure they did not have nonprofit donation write-offs and 401k tax shelters, okay? This was like not a thing under the Roman Empire, okay? Second, military power and presence, constantly there, okay? This is not just some small thing. They're constantly in, surrounded by this military presence. There's rumors that these, these soldiers, they would actually enter into the temple area, and we looked at last week how sacred this temple was to the Hebrew people, and they would just perform these absolutely uh, indecent acts in there. They would take the scrolls and they would burn them. It was this like mockery. You, you could be walking down the street. You know, you're, you're walking with your family and you're headed to the temple for worship. And a Roman soldier could come up to you and by law, they could force you to carry all of their gear, all of their equipment for up to a mile. And so you're walking this way and all of a sudden a soldier comes up and is just like, hey, you, carry all this stuff, I'm going that way. And by law, you had, you had to do that. Uh, even, even on their shields, there was, these, there was a bull uh, and there was a pig. And, and even that just felt like a mockery to the Hebrew people. This, this kind of golden-ish calf does it have any kind of history to the Jewish people? You better believe it did. And, and, and you know, there was this, you know, um, the, the uncleanliness of a boar and a pig, and, and, and what that represented on their armor. Just think, they're just these dominant bullies. And so the story of Jesus, when you read through his teachings, it's soaked in Roman, in Roman military rule at the time. Jesus says, if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles, right? That's not just some like random thing he made up. He's talking about living this countercultural way in, in the midst of Roman rule. And do you think people liked Jesus for his teaching? Do you think they enjoy, oh, yeah, they have all these expectations for Messiah, and he shows up, and he talks about things like turning the other cheek and loving your enemies, okay? But this is the context, crippling taxation, military power and presence, and then you think about their homes and their lands, how, how sacred land was, this promised land. And yet, with the taxation, and how it worked was there was tax collectors, and the tax collectors, they would collect for Herod, and they would collect for Caesar. So Caesar got his cut, Herod got his cut, and how did tax collectors get paid? They just determined what, whatever number uh, they, they would collect. This is why it was somewhere between 70 and 90%. And you know how it was enforced? It was enforced by this military presence. So imagine you're working you have this property that's been passed down family line after family line after family line. And now you're, you become, you get in crippling debt to the Roman Empire. And so people start to lose their homes. They start to lose their way of life. They're losing these spaces that were sacred to them. And then all of this was under the rule 
of, of Herod, who was over this region, and Herod was absolutely a dominant dictator. He was cruel. We see here in the Christmas story that as rumors of the Messiah, born in Bethlehem, he, Herod sends his soldiers to kill all infants two years or younger born in that area, all male infants in that area. I mean, this is the kind of things that he would do. Uh, he, he would crucify people by the thousands. I mean, he's just this dominant dictator. And so the Hebrew people, they are broken and they are a hopeless people. They're hungry, they're downtrodden, they're discouraged. You can just sense the despair and, and this buildup and this anger. God, why are you allowing this to happen? We're supposed to be your chosen, protected people. We're supposed to carry on this offspring. And so what do they expect when Messiah shows up? They have all kinds of expectations for him. Uh, the Hebrew word for Messiah is actually the word Mashiach, okay? And so we translate it as Messiah or anointed one or even Christ, okay? So Christ isn't Jesus' last name, right? It's a title, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And so when they're looking for this coming Messiah, they believed he would be a great leader who would deliver them from their oppression and establish a new kingdom here on earth. And so you kind of go through what they were looking for, and here's some of the marks that you would see. And in fact, if you ask a practicing Hebrew today, what are you waiting for in Messiah? This is what they would say. They would say the Mashiach, he will be a great political leader descended from King David. Because, and a lot of this actually comes from scripture, but it's this reorienting uh, of scripture to kind of fit their needs and where they're at. Because Jeremiah 23 talks about how he will reign as king and he will execute justice. And so they're like, oh yeah, he's gonna be a great political leader. He will be well-versed in Jewish law and observant of its commands. This comes from Isaiah 11. It talks about how he's righteous and faithful and God's word is written on his heart, right? And so Jesus shows up and they think, oh, he's gonna observe all of, he's gonna know the law and he's gonna observe its commandments. This is why they were so angry when Jesus would heal a cripple on Sabbath day. Because they're like, no, 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 you're not observing our laws. And so there's no way you can actually be Messiah. Uh, he will be a charismatic leader inspiring others to follow his example. Okay, so what do you look for in a charismatic leader? Somebody who rallies people together and calls them forth to a mission. And Jesus would get, get people together and be like, hey, unless you die to yourself daily, you can't follow me. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. And people are constantly like walking away confused. Uh, he will be a great military leader is what they believed, who will win battles for Israel. He will be a great judge who makes righteous decisions. So all of it is just this building and this, uh, this understanding of who he is and, and, and what he brings. And so they expected the Messiah to be a military leader. They expected him to be a spiritual leader. They expected him to be a political leader who would negotiate a better deal with the Romans and improve the lives of the Jews living under their rule. And so you come across passages like Isaiah chapter nine and you read it. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of his greatness, 
of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establish and upholding it with justice and righteousness from the time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, if you're a Jew living under Roman oppression and you were promised a Messiah whose great government will never end, who will reign like David, who will establish justice, and all of it will be marked by the zeal of the Lord Almighty, what would you be looking for? Right? You're looking for a victorious warrior. You're looking for a mighty king. You're looking for a dominant ruler. But instead of coming with blazing chariots and angel armies at his command, ready to fight the enemy, Jesus shows up, and he came as a humble suffering servant. He showed up as a baby, a child, an infant. And because of their misguided expectations, they missed the Messiah. They wanted a warrior slaughtering their enemies, doing battle. They wanted a political leader who could rule and reign and establish authority They wanted all these things, and Jesus shows up as a baby. He was supposed to deliver Israel from all oppressors and lead them into a new golden age of power and authority. A rabbi from Galilee teaching grace, peace, love, and forgiveness is not what they had in mind, was it? And look, they were not incorrect in their expectation that the Messiah came to establish his kingdom. That's exactly what he came to do. But here's what they missed. They missed what that kingdom would be like and how that kingdom would be established. Because what they thought that kingdom would be like would be them in power and authority. And it results that that kingdom is actually an upside-down kingdom completely contrary to the culture around us, one marked by grace, one marked by forgiveness. And they forgot, they missed how it would be established. See, they missed the Messiah because they were watching for a conquering king and they couldn't comprehend a savior that would come as a suffering servant. They refused to recognize a Messiah that was wrapped in the meekness of a manger. And so because of their misguided expectations, it actually prevented them from seeing the true Christ, the true anointed one. And here's the thing. This is why all, what all of this builds to. Um, like, if we're not careful, we can do the same. We can do the same. We easily can look to Jesus and God and his sovereignty and his authority and think, okay, he's on our side so that we can win whatever political battle we're in. We can win places of power. We can win prestige. We can, we can, we can just progress our agenda and so we, we get these misguided expectations ourselves that we put on our Savior. And honestly, one of them that I see in a massive way that Christians are fighting for is power. Man, we need power. We need authority. And so we fought for power and influence in our culture and believe that as God's people, we deserve, we deserve it. And it's led to what, what some would categorize as, as something called Christian nationalism. We're, we're at its core, look, I get the desire that we want a Christian nation. 
at the desire we'd be a, a people, we, we long to be a, a kingdom people. And God's kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule. And so, but because of the curse upon our flesh, the way we manifest this desire, it's broken. We want to dominate in our culture. We want to dictate what other people believe and how they behave. And we try to gain this, not through the way of the kingdom, but we actually try to gain this through political elections rather than living out the teachings of Jesus. Man, and I see it constantly. Rather than the pulpit dictating our politics, for so many churches, they've allowed politics to determine and influence the pulpit. And it's completely backwards. And there's no place for that in the kingdom of God. This, this, this fleshly, power-hungry desire, man, it has no place in the way of Jesus. And this political power grab of many Christians here in our Western church culture, it couldn't be more antithetical to the way of Jesus. And if Christians, listen, even if you are winning elections, can I just warn you? Like no human is righteous enough to wield power righteously. And so we find ourselves placing hope in the wrong things, longing for the wrong things. This grab for, for cultural power, we can find ourselves turning our political opponents into an adversary to be destroyed rather than an enemy to be loved. Anne Lamont, she put it like this. You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates the same people you do. See, what Jesus taught was that we are actually to love our enemies. Instead, we seek to publicly humiliate our political, political opponents. Jesus taught that we should pray for those who persecute us, but instead of falling on our knees, we're posting on our phones. And maybe the reason an entire generation is being lost by the church is not because of the teachings of Jesus are hard. It's because we're pointing them to a political platform rather than a suffering savior. Everybody offended yet? You feel it? Like, can I be honest? Like, I feel this. Like, th this is something I, and I, I have these temptations in my own life, right? So like, what, a month ago, we have this state election. It feels like the biggest, most important election we've had in a long time. I'm out of state, I'm out in the middle of the mountains, I have no cell phone service, right? And I'm like, this is kinda nice, not knowing what's happening. But what do I do? First thing I do, like I get into cell phone range, I pull out my phone, I'm like, hey, what happened? And I'm like, kinda disappointed. So what do I do? I come home and I pick it. Right? And I rally, no, this, if we would have just had this political leader, if this law would have been passed or not passed, then things would actually happen. Then we'd see the change we want. This, this is what we need, guys. We need, no. You know what I came home and did? I opened my Bible. I got up on a Sunday, and I preached a message of how Jesus is making us into a countercultural community marked by compassion, kindness, and humility, because Jesus is always the answer. And if we're not careful, we're gonna miss him. And we're gonna be raising up a whole nother generation and say, no, 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 this is how change happens. It happens through politicians. It happens through power. It happens through voting. It happens through law. Change happens by the Messiah coming to earth. And the only way we change is when we come to the Messiah. 
And, and so we have to have, we have to be a church. We have to, we are called to be light. We are not called to gain cultural power. We are called to be a beacon of light that points to a king who one day will rule and reign for all of eternity. Amen. And so this is not our job to establish that. Our job is to declare it. His job is to establish that. And we worship him and we pray to him and we build our lives upon him along the way. See, the Jews, the Hebrews, they missed Jesus because they were looking at their opponents. They were looking at their enemies and they're like, the only way to possibly defeat this evil is we need someone more powerful and and bigger and mighty and dare I say even more evil to destroy them and wipe them out. And Jesus shows up in a manger, as an infant. And he walks around teaching people. And you know the way you defeat evil? It's not with bigger evil. You defeat it with love. You defeat it with grace. You defeat it with forgiveness. And again, if we are not careful, and we think that Jesus shows up to bring us power or prosperity or a problem-free life, then we're either going to A, create a false image of Jesus to justify our misguided expectations, or B, we're gonna become deeply angry with an idol God that doesn't cater to our every demand, and that's not who Jesus is. And look, we could go on and on. I want prosperity and prestige. I want a problem-free life. I want peace on earth. I want my family to be whole again. I want my health back. Look, none of these are bad things. In fact, all of them, the reason we're longing for them, things like power, things like prosperity, things like the lack of problems, things like peace, we are longing for them because we're longing for the kingdom of Jesus. But we're still, we live in a curse-stricken wounded world. And if we're not careful, we'll miss Jesus because of how our misguided expectations of what the kingdom will look like and how the kingdom will be brought here on earth. And so what do we need? I feel like we need a symbol. I feel like we need to be reminded. I feel like we need a manger. It's this incredibly powerful symbol that marks our Christmas season over and over and over. And the manger is so powerful because it's meant to serve as a signpost, not of what we are longing for, but who we are longing for. It says, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. See this powerful image of a baby wrapped in a manger. It tells us so much about who God is and what he is like. First, the manger, it, it was a sign of God's accessibility. A God who comes near that we have access to. It's not just a sign for the shepherds, but it's a sign for all of us that Jesus is accessible to each and every one who seeks him. See, if, uh, think about this, okay? If the Messiah, if Jesus was born in a royal palace, could the shepherds come and find him? No way, they wouldn't have access. Even if he was born in your average everyday home household, like, and they come knocking on the door, people are like, 
can you not? Like, nice costume, but like, can you not, right? You guys smell, like, they would not have access, okay? But a manger, it was accessible to everyone, and it still is. See, Jesus, he didn't show up for the healthy. He came for the sick. The Messiah, he didn't come for the righteous. He came for the broken. And Jesus, he's not merely accessible to those with enough political power or religious might or financial freedom. Jesus is accessible to all. And can I just remind you, man, this Christmas, man, you have access to Jesus. I don't don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how you view yourself or how others view you. Let the manger be a symbol, a sign of God's accessibility to you. Second, the manger, it was a symbol of Christ's humility. It's this, just like picture it, right? We picture Jesus, the Messiah, arriving on a throne. That's what the Hebrew people were waiting for. Yet he shows up in this rough-hewn, splintery, smelling feeding trough. And this is important because only this can adequately illustrate the shocking condescension that the God of the universe displayed through Christ's birth. This is where Paul in Philippians 2 explains, man, Jesus is fully equal with God because he is God himself. Yet he he did not consider that something to be grasped or to use to his own advantage. Instead, he makes himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, by becoming, you know what he became? He became a human, the lowly of the lows. He became a human. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the humility of our Savior. It's incredible. God the Son, he became a human being, giving up the glories of heaven to live as a lonely man, a servant, and he's born in a feeding trough. In a world that values rank and accomplishment and power and authority, Jesus, he chose humility. Paul Levy, in his book, The Condescending God, he puts it this way. He says, God became man and took on flesh. The creator became a creature. The one who hung the stars lay helpless in a manger. The one who we teach our children is so big, so strong, so mighty, became so tiny, so weak, so powerless. The creator of time entered time. The one whose everlasting arms are underneath his people lay vulnerable in his mother's arms. Man, this is the humility of Jesus. But also the manger, it's an image for how our Savior satisfies. There's all these kind of like really fun play on words as you read through this. Uh, because the new, newborn Jesus, who is the bread of life, uh, he's in a feeding trough in a little town of Bethlehem. You know what Bethlehem means? It means house of bread in Hebrew. So the bread of life is in a feeding trough in the house of bread. Like, it's like the ultimate dad joke, you know, right? Like this, like father, you know, if you become a dad, you're, you're instantly given this power of puns. And it's the image of God being born in you, right? It's just playing out. 
the ultimate father. And this is the, because it's always constantly, as you read through the scriptures, everything is soaked in symbolism. And this is it. And see, we we read this and we read about Jesus being the bread of life. And we don't quite understand it. Am I right? Like, that's not our culture. We're, we're not, we're not, we don't just live on or live for bread, you know? Like, where most of us grew up, none of us knew what gluten was. Now there's like five of us who can eat a bagel, right? Like, <laughs> and so it's not this longing, that, that, that desire that we have. But imagine if you were a people who were taxed at 70, 80, 90%. What do you, what do you think there was 5,000 people plus women and children, 5,000 men plus women and children that gathered around Jesus and that he had compassion enough to feed them because they had no food themselves. And Jesus shows up and he says, I am the bread of life. And he goes on and he keeps building on this, this idea that he has the power to give us everlasting life. There is no other food that can do that. There's no other nourishment that can yield lasting joy. Those who feast on this bread will never go hungry. These are the teachings that Jesus is constantly. What he's saying is, what do you long for? And for us, we maybe have different longings. For you, maybe it's family, maybe it's purpose, maybe it's security, maybe it's friendships. I don't know what it is, but whatever you long for, all the longings of the human soul find their full and total satisfaction in Jesus. That's what the manger points us to. And so when we come to him, we have to remind ourselves, no, 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 he is what I'm looking for. He is who I long for. But more than anything, the manger is a signpost pointing to the Messiah. See, all these symbols in scripture, they're they're, they're pointing us forward to something. We have the manger, and we don't worship the manger. We worship the baby in the manger. We have the cross, because we don't worship the cross. We worship the Savior who hung upon it. And we have the empty tomb. All of these meaningful symbols, but we do not worship the empty tomb. We worship the one who borrowed that tomb for three days. All of them are signposts pointing to Jesus. Now, now think about this. Why, why, why do we need a signpost? Why do we need this explained? Because for Mary and Joseph, like, do you think People believed them. I, I would argue not a chance. People didn't believe, Joseph didn't even believe Mary. Mary shows up pregnant one day, and what does it tell us? That Joseph was gonna divorce her quietly because they were engaged, they were betrothed to be married. And, and Joseph's like, I know how that happens, and I know that wasn't me, Right? And so he's going to divorce her quietly. An angel has to show up to Joseph. And so they, they show up. Do you think their family, like, believed them? You know what's interesting about this? It talks about there's no room at the inn, right? I know we have our little skits, and there's, like, the innkeepers, like, go away, right? You know, like, inn in actually means house, okay, or dwelling. So we don't know that it was, like, a Motel 6. It might have just been a house, right? Now, imagine Mary and Joseph show up. And they show, why do they go there? Because all, everybody needs to um, report to their hometown for their census, right? So who's in your hometown? Your family. So they show up. Mary's pregnant, eight, nine months, so, she's pretty far along. 
Mary is pregnant, and they show up to their family, and they're not allowed a place in the house. Why would that be? Why, why on earth would they not give them a room in the house? You know why? Because they believed Mary was carrying a child that was either going to be born out of wedlock or the child of someone else. She, she's, she walks in, she carries all this shame according to the people around her. This is why there's no room in the inn. And so they have this like secret. Not that they're not telling people, but nobody believes them. Nobody would know. And, and look at what N.T. Wright says about this. This is, this is so spot on. The manger isn't important in itself. It's a signpost, a pointing finger, finger to the identity and task of the baby boy who's lying in it. The shepherd summoned in from the fields like David, the shepherd boy brought in from the fields to be anointed as king. They're made privy to the news so that Mary and Joseph, hearing it from this unexpected source, will have extra confirmation of what up until now has been their own secret. You know there was challenges that even Mary and Joseph had in believing this. And yet these shepherds, they show up and say, God has told us that this baby that you carry is the Messiah. The deliverer, the Christ, the anointed, the promised one. And so listen, we need to come to the manger. We need to stop going to the temple of culture adoration or the throne room of worldly power. We need to stop turning to signs and symbols of power and prosperity. And we need to come to the true king, king who is lying in a manger. A manger that it marks his accessibility to all of us. The king who is swaddled under blankets of humility and humanity. The savior who lies there, he's the one we are truly looking for. And here's the thing, man. Like, we all have these burdens we carry. We can look at the burdens of the Hebrew people and say, man, that's why they missed the Messiah. But if we're not careful, we can do it too. We've had a painful, hard, challenging last few years. But here's what I need you to know, that all that we're facing, all that we're going through, because it's pointing us to the God who comes near and satisfies like nothing else. It's to get us to this point where we realize, man, everything, everything can be lost except Jesus. Nothing satisfies except Jesus. No one will never not let us down except Jesus. He is the only one. You know, and I, I shared a couple weeks ago, I, I, just, I think I just mentioned it offhandedly in one of, the, one of the services, but I was telling the story about my sister and her husband. And uh, they bought a new house, which is like such a fun, exciting moment as their family grows and my sister carries their soon-to-be-born daughter 
And uh, there was a couple days overlap in between selling their last house and moving into the new one. And so they put all their stuff into a giant moving truck uh, and then stayed a few nights in a hotel. And the night before, they were going to move into the new house, get the new keys. Uh, that moving truck was stolen. And I'm like, how? like, I've heard people getting stuff stolen. Like, imagine all of your stuff. All of your stuff. And I'm like, just devastated. And the next day, um, I text her. And I'm like, Mar, how, how you doing today? They had borrowed some air mattresses that they slept on. And she texts me this picture, and it's her son Oliver and her little Frenchy dog Lola, and they're by the fireplace. She takes a picture, and she sends it to me by their new fireplace. And she just says, we have all we need right here. Apparently, her husband didn't make the cut, but you know what? I'm... <laughs> but man, we have all we need right here. This Christmas, church, as we behold the manger, despite all the expectations that have not gone our way, the financial prosperity you thought you'd have by now, the political progress we thought we would make, the relational reconciliation we thought we would obtain, the positions of power and influence we feel like we deserve, would we let it all go and come and behold Jesus and just say we have all we need right here? This is why we behold the manger, that we would adore him, that we would worship him, that we would lay our fears and our worries at his feet, that we would find satisfaction in him and that we would just lift all and place all upon his shoulders, for he is the king. Would you do me a favor and just bow your heads and close your eyes? I just want to close before, before I pray with an adaptation of a quote by John Paul II. It says, it is Jesus that you seek when you dream of happiness. He is waiting for you when nothing else you find satisfies you. He is the beauty to which you are so attracted. It is he who provoked you with that thirst for fullness that will not let you settle for compromise. It is he who urges you to shed the mask of a false life. It is Jesus who stirs in you the desire to worship his greatness and behold his majesty, the will to follow his voice, the refusal to be led astray, the courage to commit yourselves humbly and patiently to his glory, his kingdom, his way, his truth, and his life forevermore. Jesus, may we behold you this Christmas. Would we not miss your manger? Would we not miss the Messiah in midst of all the pain and all the hardship and all the suffering? Would we not try to build our kingdom through our methods, through our house, but Lord, would we surrender to your kingdom, your way, your truth, your life? And would we trust your methods in which you establish? And Lord, would we just be a beacon of light, a beacon of hope pointing to you in a powerful and miraculous way? I pray all this in your name.